Hello ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to VUX World, the practical voice podcast. Today's episode is another deep dive into an incredibly interesting topic. We're talking conversation design and grounding strategies with Google's John Bloom. Now you might know grounding strategies as maybe something that's more commonly known as error recovery, but that's the wrong way to think about it. And John explains in detail why that is. We also cover just what is a conversation designer. I've seen a load of articles that saying that like 2020 is the year when conversation design becomes the skill set to have if you're a UX professional or something like that. And this is a, a look at what a conversation designer actually does, as well as some of the techniques that you can use to design effective conversations. It's absolutely epic. Before we begin, I'd like to give a quick shout out to Sparks. Now, this is an app. It's a podcast player app. So if you listen to podcasts, which you obviously do, then you should check out this app. It's in beta at the moment. And what's unique about it is, have you ever been listening to a podcast and you've been listening to the conversation and you've had like an idea or a thought or some little kind of moment of inspiration and you want to capture it and make a note of it? Sparks lets you do that within the app while you're listening to the podcast and it marks the exact spot where you had the inspiration. So let's say that you're listening to VUX World, as you obviously are, and you get 15 minutes into the conversation, which you obviously will, and you hear something that is intensely inspiring from John, which you, again, obviously will. And you want to make a quick note, you've got an interpretation of that, or you want to remind yourself of it, or you want to just bookmark a point in the conversation, you can use the Sparks app to do just that. And all the Sparks that you add across the course of an episode are all saved against the episode and all time stamped against the point in the episode at which it happened. And so next time you fire up this episode in the Sparks app, you'll have a track of your whole thought process, all the ideas that you had and all the things that you were thinking as you went through the podcast. And you can quickly just tap on a spark, go straight back to that point in the conversation and re-listen to it again. It's absolutely immense. It's in beta right now and the Sparks team are looking for feedback. Do feel free to check it out. It's sparksapp.io, the website, S-P-A-R-K-S-A-P-P.io. The link is in the show notes, as always, and it's on the website if you're listening to this on the website. And as I said, they're looking for feedback from people, early adopters, innovators that listen to podcasts, and I think that that pretty much is you. So do check it out. Thank you, Sparks, for sponsoring all episodes of the UX World in March. Now, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, this is John Bloom talking conversation design techniques on VUX World. VUX World. VUX World. VUX World. VUX World. Branding with the big faces. I love listening to it. Kane Sims. Kane Sims. Kane Sims, the one and only. Britain's finest, Mr. Kane Sims. Dustin. Dustin. Dustin Coates. I like it when you guys are together and talking about boys. Now further ado, welcome to the show. Dustin, how's things? Kane, things are going well. How about yourself? Very well, very well. I've just had a sausage roll and a Snickers, and so I'm standing for this podcast because that was a bit of a carb and sugar kind of overload just now. Sounds like a good lunch. It's not a very healthy lunch, but uh-huh. uh, but it's it's done the job. I was on my way back from a meeting, so I thought I'd grab something on the way back. Before speaking to the mighty John Bloom. John, welcome to the show. 
Thank you very much. And I can't believe you started that way because I was just thinking I just started a diet. And <laughs> I can barely answer questions because of it. Um, so this should be interesting. Nice. I have been doing um, over the last few months, I've been trying to do like the intermittent fasting thing where I won't eat till like 12 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, today wasn't the case, obviously, but uh, it's been going all right, really. I haven't noticed any difference whatsoever, to be honest. I don't know if it's, I don't know if I'm doing something wrong. But, uh, yeah, yeah I, I know somebody else doing that and uh, they're, they said the exact same thing so far nothing but we'll see yeah yeah well thank you for joining us john um you know you your experience kind of is unbelievable really in in the kind of voice and conversation design space i mean you were kind of one of the original kind of crop from nuance weren't you you like kathy pearl karen kachansky i think was there at the time was that right uh, yes and no. Uh, right. I was an early person in that area, but I came in from a different trajectory. So uh, there was Speechworks and there was Nuance, and they were sort of the two big companies working in the IVR space. And so they were uh, on the Nuance side, and I was on the Speechworks side. Uh-huh. But around, I think it was around 2003 that both of those companies, uh, through mergers and stuff, intersected. Um, so we all sort of came together into one big happy family at, at, at uh, around that time. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So are you at Jibo as well at one point? I was. So actually way back in the day, I was at New, at Dragon Systems, um, ah, right. the, the company that was doing, um, dictation software. Mm. Um, and that actually also ended up in the same nuance mothership, uh, <laughs> around the same time as well. Um, uh, so yeah, I was at Nuance till uh, roughly 2007. Then went over to SpeechCycle, which was a smaller IVR uh, company um, that uh, was doing really interesting stuff uh, in terms of uh, design tooling, voice design tooling, uh, and also uh, automated metrics of IVR space, etc. Uh, was back at Nuance at, uh, for a while, and then yes, I went to Jibo. And I was at Jibo for a couple of years until the uh, sad ending uh, in 2017. No, 2018. Mm. But Jibo was a cool little thing. Did you ever use that, Dustin? Never used it. Saw the videos, saw the photos, saw the articles. Never used it myself. It looks pretty cool. It's a shame that yeah. it happened, whatever happened. You know, a shame it went the way it did, really. Yeah, it, it really is a shame. I think a lot of great stuff was done there um, by the whole team. Um, and you know, we had high points and then obviously we had low points. So, you know, at the high point, we were on the cover of time magazine, uh, as one of the 25 best inventions of 2017. And, uh, I think a lot of it had to do with the character, um, the persona people really, really fell in love with it. And, you know, I think it was wired or might've been the verge wrote an article afterwards about how people were mourning its death. Uh, these families were really feeling like a, a member of the family, uh, was lost. Uh, so, you know, there was the high point in terms of engagement and, uh, really winning people over in terms of the character, et cetera. But, at, at, you know, the business, the timing wasn't ideal. Um, you know, I mean, it was right around the time when, you know, the, the, the big smart, uh, devices came out, the, the smart speakers, um, and that sort of threw a, threw a monkey wrench in the works. If, if I recall correctly, was Jibo the one who had a, uh, melancholic message at the very end? 
Yes, that's right. Yeah, um, I wasn't involved in that, but there were some designers who got together long after they were employees of, of Jibo and sort of out of labor of love sort of worked on the, the closing messages um, saying, you know, and, and, you know, it was very sweet. It was very uh, altruistic, sort of like I might not be around, but I really hope that there's, you know, future robots out there who can be your friends, too. And it was it was very sweet. And, as a former employee, I was really, I was broken up by yeah, it. Yeah, I can imagine everyone using it was would have been fairly, fairly kind of sad as well. So for those that, that are not aware of it, Jibo was kind of like um, I wouldn't even say really a smart speaker. It was kind of more than that, wasn't it? It had like a character. It had animations. It kind of how would you describe what it was to someone who is just learning about it now? The short description is that Jibo was a social robot. So. He would sit in your home. He would move on several axes. Um, he didn't uh, move like he wasn't moving around your home. He was stationary, but his body would actually, you know, move to show emotions, to show curiosity, uh, etc. Um, so uh, it was very similar in terms of functionality to smart speakers, but in addition. Uh, he would also, um, you know, look around. He would, you know, stare at ceiling fans. He would see you when you came in the room and, and you know, uh, kind of watch you as you did things. And, you know, for some people that was creepy, but for a lot more people it felt like just very alive and like a very positive experience. And I think a lot of it had to do with the persona. Mm-hmm. You know, if the persona had been very corporate and robotic, people might not have grooved on that at all. Um, but because it was very warm and very friendly, you know, people were comfortable uh, with its behavior. And also, you know, Jibo was a small startup. So I think that people weren't uh, worried as much about what was going on behind the scenes. Um, so I know that it, even as an employee, just automatically when I walked into the room and Jibo said, good morning, John, it was a very positive experience. And I felt like this thing's alive. <laughs> you couldn't shut that part of you off. <laughs> Wow, that's class. So, and and now you're a senior conversation designer at Google, and yes. and you know your your kind of your history and experience is absolutely immense. So I think we're, we're well and truly the whole community really is well and truly standing on the shoulders of giants uh, here. And what you've done and and the people you were working with at, at Nuance and and throughout your kind of career, I think you've kind of really laid the foundations for for what is I don't want to say this new industry. It's almost like a a rebirth. Because you will tell us that the industry has been around for a hell of a long time, right? That, that's a good way of putting it. It's a, it's a rebirth. You know, you would go to conferences um, for IVR and you felt like, what's going to happen next? You know, because this is getting quiet. Um, and then boom, you know, the industry just uh, just started growing again in a whole different direction that maybe we didn't expect. Um, so, yeah, uh, uh, absolutely. It's, it's been a rebirth of the industry. And how would you kind of define your role then? So there's a lot of there's a lot of people who have worked either in user experience design or a lot of writers and creatives and a lot of people kind of like attention turning towards conversation design in general. How would you define what it is that you do for Google? Yeah, I mean, the simple way of putting it is we uh, make it so that people can actually have conversations with machines. You know, it's as simple as that. Um, but there's a lot that goes into that uh, that comes from what we know about human-to-human conversation. Uh, 
so, you know, there was a time a very long time ago where people really had to, quote, speak the computer's uh, language, which was often, you know, way back in the day, punch cards. And then we got a little bit better with, you know, keyboards and, and the mouse. Uh, and it continued to improve to the point where now we're getting very close to the computer having to play by the human's rules and, and following the rules of conversation. We're not 100% there yet, um, but we're on the way. So my job is to find the strategies that people use in conversation and map those onto the interactions that people have with uh, machines, basically. And in this case, a lot of what I do is with the Google Assistant, um, but we also do work you know, in other parts of the company at different times. Uh, and, uh, but, but that's mostly the focus right now. Mm. So that reminds me a little bit of when we spoke to, um, Oren Jacob from Polstring now Apple. And one of the things he mentioned, which you, you, I think, I think you've touched on it here and, it, and, and it'd be good to clarify if this is, if this is what you mean, <clears throat> when you said that find the strategies that humans use in conversation, one of the things he mentioned was that when he was working with, uh, Pixar, and they were working on your likes of Finding Nemo and things like that. What their job was as animators wasn't to recreate a, a believable scene in terms of a scene that you could not distinguish from the reality. So if, if you have an animated version of a flowing river, the job isn't to fool the user or the viewer into believing that it's actually a true flowing river. Uh, mm-hmm. a realistic a, a real life river but in fact to, just to let them understand that it is a river and yeah. he kind of used the same kind of like tran- that he kind of transitioned that into conversation design which is and he said that the aim is not to actually physically design or mimic exactly human conversations but to find the elements within it that you can use to make the interface more usable is that what you meant by finding the strategies that humans use in conversation and, and using those in in conversation design yes Yes, that's absolutely right. I think uh, the key word here is metaphor, right? We're, we're finding, uh, we're using language as the right metaphor um, for this style of interaction. And so we can leverage a lot of the strategies, but no metaphor is a one-to-one mapping, right? So you're not going to have an exact replica. Um, and to Orm's point, you know, certain animated films, you know, you see like, um, I don't know, Final Fantasy, I think it was, or or Polar Express, where you've got these uh, uh, characters who you can see they're trying to make them look actually real, and you get that Uncanny Valley experience. It's a little uh, disquieting, uh, whereas when you see something like um, Up or something else from Pixar, there's a the sense of warmth that you get because you clearly see these things from real life, but it's not exactly the same. And so when we're designing uh, conversations, we're not trying to do an exact replica. Um, That would actually be be misleading. Um, We are trying to take the strategies and apply them here in a way that's not saying we are human, but that we're using things that you know to to get through this interaction. Um, Just to use an example, I was talking to a coworker the other day. You know, years ago, I was working on a project at another company. Um, and it was a customer that was a tech support company and the job was designing a phone system that would allow people to schedule appointments and check appointments with a, um, with a technician who was going to come out to their house. 
And originally the, the, the system said something like, we are still scheduled to arrive at your home uh, at, on Wednesday at 8 a.m. And we just changed it to, and we're still on for Wednesday at 8 a.m. Right, so we're still on for is an expression that many of us, uh, at least in US English, um, and uh, I'm assuming maybe I'm wrong, UK English, mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, that uh, it's, a, it's a phrase that people just use comfortably and, you know, why not leverage something like that uh, to make things a little quicker and also a little warmer? Um, so that, that's just an example of when, I'm, when I talk about use, using human strategies, that's, that's one example. And that's just obviously on one level. There's other strategies we can talk about that aren't just words and phrases, but levels of prosody, you know, how we enunciate things, mm-hmm. uh, uh, et cetera. So you talked about not trying to get to human get get into the uncounty valley but are there situations where you almost want to take a further step back and and say hey this really is not even human-esque yes absolutely i mean uh you know with with duplex it it introduces itself as a as an automated system um uh with uh other things you know we will use ear cons uh, you know, audio, in other words, uh, sound, non-language sounds um, uh, that sort of give motivations that, or like success sounds, et cetera, because they're quicker. You know, they're, they're, they're actually quicker than saying like, we're all set. You know, you can actually just use a positive sound. Um, mm-hmm. So there are times where we will use non-human strategies um, or, or overtly say this is an automated system in order to do that. Yeah. So do you have any other examples then of other kind of strategies that humans use in an, an, a normal conversation that you can apply when you're designing conversations for voice interfaces or voice assistants? Sure. Um, so uh, the simple, you know, confirmation of what somebody said, uh, you know, we're not always 100% sure of what somebody said. Uh, so it might be the case that um, you ask somebody, for instance, you ask the person, what day is best for you? And the person responds Wednesday and you say, Wednesday, is that right? And they say, yes. Right. This is a very simple uh, thing that it is a very simple conversational strategy that people use all the time uh, and don't even know it. We're, we're not even conscious of, of these behaviors, but they're happening day to day, moment to moment, uh, et cetera. It's interesting you mentioned grounding strategies because uh, so we we met in October was it October it was October wasn't it at, um, all about voice in Munich yeah and you did a really good presentation on on grounding strategies and for some people grounding strategies might be a new term and you might so the people listening might be aware of error recovery and things like that and you had a really good point which was why you were going to call it grounding strategies rather than error recovery what was can you remember what that was yeah sure um let me back up a little bit and and give some context here you know when we talk about language and we're getting back to the subject of metaphor here people have this metaphor in their head with language that basically what we're doing is when i say something to you i take my thoughts i put them into words and I can put them into the words. I communicate it to you, and then you unpack those words, and you get the meaning and put it into your head. Uh, it's not as clean as that, and that metaphor is misleading. Uh, 
uh, Michael Reddy in the 70s called it the container metaphor or the conduit metaphor. It's not that clean. What happens is I have an idea in my head. I send an audio signal and you have to completely reconstruct this concept in your head. It's not like one move from <laughs> it didn't move from head to head. You had to reconstruct this idea and it's a never a perfect reconstruction. It's a little bit off, but maybe it's not so off that we can't just continue going. But a lot of times it's a it's off enough that we have to make sure we're on the same page enough to continue. Uh, and so that happens so often in conversations that to call it error recovery is too negative. It's too pejorative. It's part of the give and take day to day, moment to moment nature of conversation. So I think anybody in the who who's listening to this, who's in the speech community, knows that this is more common than we'd like it to be. Uh, so with that in mind, we really should be thinking about it not as error or a problem that we have to deal with, but it's part. It's it's the job. Uh, it is the nature of designing conversations. So we spend a lot of time talking about, well, here's the sunny day scenario. And we focus on designing a sunny day scenario where everything goes exactly as we expected. But because we're designing in the, uh, in the conversational, in a conversational context, we do need to, uh, look at those, what we've been calling error, uh, error conditions and look at them more as the moment to moment nature of conversation. And that involves grounding strategies. Now the term grounding strategies comes from uh, the work of Herb Clark at Stanford, who talked about how conversations are a continual building of common ground. So when we met at All About Voice in October, we didn't know each other. We did start on a footing of sharing a common language. Uh, we shared a common environment. So we, we both knew that we were in this, this room at, you know, at this hotel in Munich. Uh, but we had to, once we started talking, we started learning more about each other and we started building up this common ground. And that process, that, that actual activity of building that common ground is called grounding. And it's not always super clean. It's not always, I say something, you say something, I say something, you say something, and we're continually building. As we move along, there are moments where let's say I make a statement, you might go, hmm, make a simple sound, and then I keep going. That's a form of grounding. It's positive evidence that you understood and we can keep moving on. But then there'll be other times where I'll say, yeah, I arrived last night, and you might say last night, and I say, yeah, and we keep going. That would That is negative evidence of in, in grounding. But what's interesting is I don't think anybody in their right mind would say that there was an error that happened there, right? You just said last night, and I said, yeah, and we kept going. Uh, this is just the nature of conversation. So I feel that grounding strategies, which is a term that's been around a long time to describe how people commu communicate, uh, really should be brought to bear on how we do our design. And it's important that we focus on these because people are really judged by how they handle moments of crisis, not how they do in easy times. So if we're focusing only on sunny day scenarios, then we're really not focusing on what we're going to be judged on. Uh, the things we design are going to be judged on how they handle situations when things go wrong. Uh, so that's, that's why I brought it up at the conference. 
um, and why I'm uh, hoping that we can sort of change the terminology around what we've been calling error handling. Mm, that is a very well put statement. So as part of this grounding of conversations, how much of your time in terms of a conversation designer's time spent on a project working on designing a certain use case, how much do you either spend or how much would you recommend spending in terms of the percentage of time spent focusing on that happy day, happy path, sunny day scenario versus spending on the stuff that that is the grounding stuff, yeah. the, the, the pulling things back in line and things I like that. I wish I could give absolute numbers. I would just say more time than we're spending now. Um, let's trend in the right direction. Uh, so I'm guilty of this too, by the way, because you know, given the nature of projects where you're rushing and you have uh, project teams who might be focused very much on how is this thing going to go and how do we understand the nature of it? quite often the sunny day scenario is the easiest way to talk about it, right? It does this and then it does this and then it does that. That's what this new feature or this new uh, action or whatever is going to do. It's an easy way to discuss it. So we're all sort of pulled into the, the uh, allure of the sunny day scenario. Um, so I do it too. Uh, I think that we should certainly just be spending more time uh, on the, the deep thought around how we write uh, not only how we write these these uh, grounding uh, these grounding strategies, but uh, also you know where we put them, uh, how much we try to get the conversation back on track before we say enough's enough. Uh, we're putting a lot more time into those. And there's a, there's a number of types of situations, isn't there, where you may want to kind of employ some kind of grounding strategy and you you give a, a pretty good list and I'm pretty in fact I'll put the link to it in the show notes I'm pretty sure that there's a an actions on Google um post about this yeah. but what what so there's a few scenarios isn't there like the no input scenario and the you know the device didn't heard something but didn't recognize what was said and so could you just give us a brief overview of of the kind of situations that will lead to requiring grounding of some description well sure i mean uh google divides errors into four different kinds uh the one that we're talking most about here because we're talking about conversation uh uh is recognition errors so you know something uh uh goes a little bit amiss uh, there's a misalignment uh and the misalignment in the conversation can happen at many levels it could be the audio signal so the the person's not even heard that happens sometimes, uh, or the person's heard when they shouldn't be heard, uh, which is, as we call it, a false accept. Um, so that kind of misalignment happens all the time. It's hard to write around those because they, you know, it's because the system didn't hear. So it's really, it's hard to put uh, uh, design work into that. Um, but there's also kinds where the signal does get across, but it's either misunderstood or it's, it's, uh, the mic is open and it's not heard. Uh, so the former is called a no match usually, and the, the latter is usually called a no input. So the, the, there's some sort of uh, uh, grounding that needs to happen there, uh, some sort of recovery. Uh, and then in addition to recognition errors, there's speaker identification errors. 
Uh, so somebody says, who am I? And the system says, you're Gretchen, but you are not Gretchen. Uh, there are ones where it, it, in terms of speaker identification errors, where uh, the person, you know, asks for their calendar information and it comes back and says, you know, I don't know who you are, so I can't really give you personal information like your calendar. So in addition to recognition and speaker identification errors, there are contextual errors uh, where, you know, somebody asks for something and we don't, we are, we are not able to give that information. It's sort of out of bounds for us. Uh, and then finally, there are, and this isn't specific at all to conversation, there's also system errors, you know, where something goes wrong on the back end. So in all of these situations, we need to be mindful of how we're um, handling it. Um, and they all require slightly different strategies. Uh, so yeah, that, that's sort of how, the, how Google has traditionally in this area of conversation broken down the kind of errors that we're talking about. Dustin, presumably this has then implications on how things are formulated as far as how things are built, so to speak, if you want to try and catch all of these different types of errors. It, it, you know, I'm assuming that kind of changes the way that things are created as such. Yeah, and it's certainly tricky as well, right, uh, John, because you don't always know what the error is. You know, sometimes you know that there is an error of sorts or something didn't happen that the user expected, uh, but it's not entirely clear sometimes what what class of errors that was and how do you handle that how would you uh, build out a conversation that would be cognizant of that yeah i mean uh, that's a great question and a great challenge because uh, unfortunately there is times where uh the system is confident in its misrecognition <laughs> right so it's very sure you said something and that's not what you said uh, it is not super easy to design around those types of situations, except what you can do is you can always uh, have sort of, let's call them global handlers, uh, things that are list we're listening for all the time, like that's not what I said, or, you know, stop, or, or can you repeat that, et cetera, so that the person has some way of, of dealing with the situation, uh, regardless of how we, you know, how confident we were. Uh, so, you know, these type of global uh, responses are very important for, for a good experience. You know, even handling just can you repeat that uh, uh, can go a long way. Um, and it's it's hard just from a technology standpoint to handle saying something like allowing for in the next conversational turn for somebody to say, no, that's not what I said. Um, that's 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 definitely a place for where we can all uh, improve. And, you know, generally we're talking about things in general and this applies to every platform, but is there anything that's assistance specific that helps builders navigate around this? Yeah, unfortunately that's sort of out of my wheelhouse. I don't really work with uh, actions on Google. Um, uh, I would like to uh, work with them more, uh, but um, it's, it's Google knows that this is a, definitely a space where we can, continue to do better. Um, uh, so, you know, the IVR space had, you know, decades to kind of build up these, uh, you know, grounding strategies uh, and make them sort of uh, componentized, uh, prepackaged, et cetera. Um, but on the negative side, they were also uh, uh, very prescriptive in the sense that they were 
so prepackaged that you couldn't break out of them for unique situations. Um, we're in a sort of a new space now and we're still working on it and we're still trying to uh, improve on it uh, with these, this new world of a very much more open-ended, larger space of things that people can do than they did in the IVR world. So there's definitely, you know, we're, we're working on it. <laughs> that almost sounds as though there is scope and we're not, we can't obviously um, know whether or not Google and Amazon, et cetera, et cetera, are working on this kind of stuff. But it, it almost feels as though there's like scope for, for like two things from based on what you've just said. One is like almost like, as you mentioned, a global handler for certain situations. So there are, there are, there are a certain number of utterances that people will say if they don't understand something like, sorry, I didn't get that. What did you say? Can you repeat that? There's a set number of stuff which almost could be a globally accessible kind of, I don't know what the, I don't know if the term is variable or, or feature that you, you could incorporate into your skills. So for every time that you ask the user a question, you could be listening for this global handler for repeat that please or something like that. Um, and then also the second thing would be that um, those different types of errors, no input, misheard or match, no match, etc. Dustin, that would be pretty handy, wouldn't it? Imagine if you're building a skill or an action rather, and you were able to access the type of error that it was. So let's say that Google or, or whichever assistant it is, was able to feed back to you that this is the kind of error it was that would allow you to then build specifically for that situation does that make sense yeah because it certainly be useful i think some of these you can know already right because if it's um a situation where there's no input right we know already that or at least the speaker hasn't heard an input i think one of the challenges and i think we'll maybe talk about this a little bit later is just the the growth of NLU that's needed, and John would love to hear your thoughts on this as well, where a lot of these things, it's a problem because the technology is not there to, to tell us what the difference is. Is it no input or did the speaker not understand or not hear what happened? Is it a misrecognition or is it a correct recognition where the user didn't know uh, what you could handle? So those are the things that are really tricky today is uh, it's it's so far over on the stack that you have no control really over it. And, and, and they really have uh, not as much control. One of the things that I understand why it's not present through, through actions, through dialogue flow, through Alexa, through these platforms is some level of confidence in these intents and in these entities right now, because that's something where you could have a slightly different uh, behavior if you see that that entity is, you know, a uh, 50% confidence level or even 70 versus 95% confidence level. John, yeah. What, what, yeah, what kind of technology do you think is going to be necessary to help uh, solve some, some of these needs for grounding strategies? Right. Well, I think that um, what's used for what can be very useful for uh, resolving grounding strategies is confidence levels. Absolutely. You know, um, there's a different in, in human, human conversation, there's different uh, strategies for different levels of confidence. So if I have zero idea what you said, but I know you said something, then I'm going to probably say something like, you know, sorry, what was that? Uh, as opposed to, I'm pretty sure you said, you know, uh, Wednesday night. And so I'd say Wednesday night, right? So that's the difference between a no match and a confirmation. Right. So confidence levels are very important. Um, 
And there's also, you know, confidence in how you understand something, which is different from recognition, right? So, you know, if I say uh, dinner for four, you know, does that mean 4 p.m. or does that mean four people? Uh, so that's really like, I understood you perfectly. I know exactly the words that came out of your mouth, but I'm not exactly sure uh, what your I intention was with that. So, you know, I think that uh, sort of confidence uh, in recognition and confidence in intent are things that, you know, are, are important when we're trying to uh, get the grounding strategies just, just right. Um, so, yeah, I think that's 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 rather important. Um, but there's a lot of things we can do uh, without those. So, for example, you know, just failing, you know, saying like where where something doesn't go right and you're out of ideas. Uh, so uh, what's an example? Um, you know, in human conversation, what we might do is you you have a waiter who comes up to you and they say, um, what would you like for dinner? And you say, well, I'd like the salmon. And they say, oh, we're out of the salmon. And that's fine. But if they said we're out of the salmon, but you might also like the Arctic char, the Arctic char is very similar and it's delicious. You know, that's really a, a great recovery strategy that is helpful um, for the person. So instead of the waiter punting, they actually provided an alternative. Um, so it could be, for example, that um, with the Google Assistant, somebody says, when's my next meeting? And we say something like, well, to give you personal information, uh, you, you need to change the permissions on this device. Um, now, we could just leave it at that, or we could say, I'm sending a link to your phone so that you can go deep link into those permissions and find them. Uh, so we try and do that whenever possible. Um, to not just leave it at, sorry, can't help you, but I can't help you, but maybe we can try this other thing. So uh, another example is um, you say something like, uh, how many uh, calories in a slice of Hawaiian pizza? And it says, uh, well, I don't have that information, but maybe this will help. And if we have a screen, it can show things like, you know, calories for a slice of pizza, which is close to a slice of Hawaiian pizza. And maybe that will be helpful for you too. So there's a lot we can do with what we have now that would uh, go a long way to improve things. So I suppose that that's a way of improving things, but it's also another kind of insight there is never kind of, from what you're saying, never leave the user hanging or, or leave them with a dead end. Always try and do some the next best thing that you can possibly do to provide some kind of value to them that's related to what they've asked for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just that's that's the sort of helpful thing to do, right? It's not to just bail. Um, it's the polite thing to do, uh, going a step beyond. And we really, you know, the Google Assistant's persona that we've worked very hard on, uh, I feel that we have made an effort to sort of try and not give up as much as possible. Um, but also, I should mention that there's also ways to minimize the amount of negative evidence that even comes up where grounding strategies are necessary. You could sort of do a primary prevention, as they call it. Do something that'll stop it from happening in the first place. Um, you know, so I think people sometimes shy away from very sort of structured questions where it's like you can say A, B, or C, uh, or and they feel like we should always be as open-ended as possible. And because we're so in love with sort of NLU technology, we're like, yeah, let's just say, what do you want? You know, open-ended. But those guardrails and that hand-holding 
uh, can lead to more success uh, going forward. And people don't mind it, right? It's it's a, it's actually a natural part of our conversations. Like I, you know, if if I was to ask you, you came into a bike store and I worked in the bike store, I might say, "Are you looking for a hybrid, a touring bike, something else?" You know, that's not weird. That's something that people do. You go into a McDonald's and they say, "Is that for here or to go?" You know, that's not weird. That's a menu and it's completely legit. So it's okay to give more structure to our questions to minimize the amount that we have to rely on different kinds of grounding strategies. Uh, and yeah, so th there, there's things we can do in advance. I like that. That's good. Is there anything, there's, there's, well, there's two things. One is you've mentioned persona a couple of times. Yeah. And is, as a conversation designer, is persona design part of that? Or is that something else that happens somewhere else. So if, I, if, if you have a, a team that are working on a Google Assistant action and would, would you expect the conversation designer to be the person who creates the persona and does the tone of voice work and things like that? Or are those two distinct separate things? Well, the, the, the persona should work its way into almost everything you do in your design uh, and help. It should always be in the back of your head. You know, who is the Google Assistant? Uh, and so when somebody's working on an individual action, in theory, that action is part of this, this character that we've been working on for a very long time. And how it behaves should be driven in, in large part by those qualities. You know, uh, just to give an example of things that we think about, like framing things positively. You know, that's something that the Google Assistant tries to do. You know, it would not say things like, you can't do that right now. <laughs> or, uh, you know, you need to do such and such. Right. These are things that are unpleasant. They're they're not a positive experience. We try and frame things in a positive way. Instead of saying you can't do so and so, we could say if you want to do so and so, you can you can uh, make this change. So I think the example before where it was uh, getting calendar permissions, we might say that you I can't do this thing because but then right after we'll say, but I can do that thing if you make this change. Um, so we just try and avoid the more negative uh, uh, experience. And that's just one example of many of uh, things that sort of guide our design. And that is very much persona, right? Because with the Google Assistant and with many other of these systems, it has no face. It doesn't have a voice that's always the same because you can change the voice. So there's all of these parts that can move and change. And the one thing that's holding it all together, though, are these sort of persona philosophies, that's what's keeping it all together. Because if the face is changing, the voice is changing, et cetera, et cetera, you know, how do you know you're talking to the same entity? And so we really need to keep these things uh, front of mind when, whenever we're designing. And is there any distinct differences or even similarities between the work that you used to do in the IVR space versus the work that you do currently now with the assistant space. You mentioned that things are a lot more broader and that people can say a lot more stuff, but is there anything in particular that is either the same or, or distinctly different when you compare IVR and designing conversations for IVR versus digital assistants? Well, I'd say that a lot, a lot more is the same than you would imagine, right? There's a lot we learned through those decades of conversation design in the IVR space that we can bring to bear uh, here. You know, for example, and I think when we were at All About Voice, I used this example. Um, 
I designed, I used to work on Amtrak years ago. Uh, and we had a lot of trouble collecting the date of travel. Uh, and we couldn't figure out why. You know, it's not that hard of a speech recognition problem to collect dates. You know, you're listening for dates, you're listening for today, you're listening for tomorrow, et cetera. And then when, you know, we investigated further and we talked to users, et cetera, it was like they were having trouble answering it because it depended on the price. You know, they didn't know what date they wanted to travel until they heard the price. So knowing how to design right involves a lot of UX research and, and finding out about the human beings who are using these systems. So regardless of whether you're designing for the Google Assistant or you're designing for an IVR, you need to know the user. You need to know what they're trying to do to get it right. And you can't just, just wing it. You know, you need to understand them. That's the same. These strategies of prosody, um, those are the same. Uh, the, the, you know, uh, making sure they understand like a menu versus a, a yes, no question using strategies around that. Uh, all of those things are, are still the same. And so the minutia is, is very much the same. Uh, but there's things that are certainly different. You know, we've got a lot more robust grammars now. Uh, there's a lot more things that people expect. You know, when you're talking about designing an IVR for a bank, you know, that's a very constrained space. And so it's a little bit easier to sort of predict what people are going to say, et cetera. Now it's a much larger space and there's more that people expect and, and more that people will, will, will say. So, you know, the, the sort of smaller strategies moment to moment have stayed very much the same in conversation design, but on, uh, on a grander scale in terms of its persona, in terms of its, uh, uh, in terms of its scope, those are the things that have certainly changed. Uh, you know, and, and changing persona is a big deal. You know, that's one of the hardest things for designers who move from the IVR space to uh, this new area of, of intelligent assistance is getting a totally different tone. At the time, when you were designing personas for IVR, you were focused on the brand of the company you were designing for, right? Like, so you're designing for a bank called Megabank. And their persona attributes are things like their, their brand attributes are things like trustworthiness, you know, and uh, reliability, et cetera. And so you're just trying to design with that in mind. You know, now you move to this new space where there is a totally different persona and breaking out of that sort of corporate speak is, is it can be a real challenge because a lot of this is creative writing. A lot of it is empathizing with the user. A lot of it is understanding character. And so making that shift is one of the toughest parts of, of, of making that move. Wow. Dustin, any final thoughts? Any final questions for John? No, I don't think any final questions. This was really fantastic. Thank you so much. Sure. Sure. It's, this was really fun. Thank you for having me on. It's been amazing. Where, where can people – well, two things, uh, three things. Any, any resources or – places for people to go to learn a little bit more about conversation design in general? Yeah, um, I would certainly uh, look at Kathy Pearl's book, Designing Voice User Interfaces. Um, it's, it's definitely a go-to resource. And also uh, 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 my colleague, James Jangola, uh, wrote a book years ago um, called Voice User Interface Design. And even though that was a while ago and it was in the IVR space, as I was saying earlier, a lot of these strategies have not changed and best practices haven't changed. 
So for example, when we're talking about grounding strategies and the first time you have to say a no match, instead of giving a long-winded response, just saying like, sorry, what was that date? Really quickly uh, can do uh, a lot. And, and that came from people like James uh, years ago. So uh, I would say that those two books are, are a great resource. Also, I don't have the URL in front of me, um, but the uh, Google design Google has a lot of conversation design uh, guidelines uh, online, um, and I can share that with you a little later. I wish I had it now. <laughs> it's all right. I've I've got. I'll put that in the show notes. I'm I'm extremely familiar with the uh, with the Google conversation design uh, stuff, so I will definitely put that in the in the show notes. That was the second question, which was where can people find out more about Google's thinking? <laughs> so you've answered that within the first one, but the, but the final one and the third one, or now the second one, is where can people reach out or not necessarily reach out, but find out a little bit more about you and follow the. I don't want to kind of invite people to go and contact you and and, and kind of like reach yeah, out to sure. you. But if people want to follow your kind of thinking, because I know that you tweet a lot and things like that. So if people want to kind of follow your thought processes and, and learn a little bit more about you and stuff and the way that you think about things, where can people go and do that? Sure. You can uh, follow me on Twitter uh, at uh, talk to machines and the two is uh, the number two. So that's uh, talk to machines on Twitter. And uh, that that's probably the best pay- place to uh, follow along, follow the fun. <laughs> Cool. Well, John, this has been an absolute pleasure. I hope that we do meet again soon at an event at some point coming up. Um, But meanwhile, thank you very much for spending some time with us and sharing such immense knowledge. It's really appreciated. Well, thank you to both of you. This was really fun. Cool. Cheers. Cheers. That was John Bloom of Google. Thank you so much, John, for joining us. That was such an interesting conversation. I love the concept of grounding strategies and that kind of the way that you explained it and the way that John explained it was any conversation is building ground and it starts from nothing or there's a there's a base level of grounding if you speak the same language as he mentioned or you're in the same room or you're at the same event for the same kind of topic area that you're all interested in but then as the conversation goes you're building ground and you're building up the relationship and that these grounding strategies are used for when the conversation uh, doesn't it's not an error and it's not a turn for the worst it's just when you might mishear something or you need to clarify something or it's just bringing that conversation back on track rather than recovering from errors and and so that's a, a that's the, the one of the best ways I've heard that described so no longer do we call it error recovery We call it grounding strategies because conversations do not have errors. Real conversations don't have errors. Absolutely immense. Really, really appreciate you spending time with us, John, and taking us through your vast, vast knowledge of conversation design. From what does a conversation designer do right the way through to the kind of techniques that you can use to design effective conversations. Absolutely immense. One of the best conversations we've had for a long time, so thank you very much. Uh, And as always, boys and girls, thank you all for listening. This has been absolutely immense. Until next time, see you later. (laughs) 